Sad will be the day when the American people forget their traditions and their history and no longer remember that the country they love, the institutions they cherish, and the freedom they hope to preserve were born from the throes of armed resistance to tyranny and nursed in the rugged arms of fearless men. Roger Sherman Hello and welcome back to the homespun movement. Today's episode, I am actually going to be spending a little more time on. It's going to be a little longer than most of the episodes will be, but I think today's episode is really important. Like I said last time, the last episode and this episode are going to really kind of be the foundational blocks that we build on going forward when we talk about any issues that arise today within the realm of politics, we're always going to be looking at it in light of what our founders intended for this country. And that's why today is very important. So what I'm going to be doing is I want to talk about specifically some catalysts that led up to the American Revolution and to our nation being founded. I'm going to talk about a very basic overview of how the colonial governments were structured before the revolution because we need to really understand that to understand the grievances that the founding fathers had with the current form of government they were under. So we'll look at that and then we're going to look at several acts of parliament that escalated the revolution towards freedom. Then once we do that, we're actually going to look at the whole Declaration of Independence Before you freak out, I am not going to just read it through solid. I'm going to break it up into parts. And specifically in the middle, there's a list of 27 grievances that the founding fathers had that they listed as their reasons for breaking off from Great Britain. It's like the first ever breakup text. Like, this is what you did, and this is why I'm leaving you. Pretty much. So... They were very specific in how they listed them. And because of that, I'm going to read one and then I'm going to stop and try to give you an explanation of what it meant. And then we're going to finish that off and kind of wind everything up. Okay, so to get started with our basic colonial government. So at that time, the United States was still under the control of Great Britain. The king at the time was King George III. So through the declaration, when we get to that, you're going to see the pronoun he a lot. Typically, when you see that, it's referring to King George specifically. So obviously, King George is the king, obviously, and he's by right of that title over all of the following government portions. So you have King George, and then you have Parliament. Um Parliament was in two houses at the time. You had the House of Lords, which was exactly what it sounds like. It was the lords, the titled people of Great Britain. And then you had the House of Commons, which was your gentry, your lower level people. So you have King George and Parliament who were based in Britain. And remember at this time, there's like a whole, I mean, there's no fast way to communicate at this point. They're communicating through letters, ships back and forth. So everything we're going to talk about is over 
a span of several years because of that. Had this been in modern times, this probably would have been sped up a little bit. But anyway, you have King George, you have Parliament, and then when you come to America itself locally, you have the 13 colonies, which were sometimes broken up into smaller sections. And then over these sections, you had a governor. The governor was typically appointed by the king. He was not elected. It was someone who the king said, hey, I think you'll do a good job of ruling this colony. You go do this. It could have been someone that had done the king a favor or had just made the king happy. That was how those people got those positions. So you have your governor. And then the governors, in turn, would appoint a council. The council was similar to how our Senate would be viewed. The Senate is the upper house of Congress. The council was the upper house for the colonial legislature. They were appointed by the governor. So you kind of have a trickle down. The king appoints the governor. The governor is going to want to keep the king happy. So he's going to appoint people who are going to do what the king wants. Not a lot of representation for the people yet, right? So your council was under the governor. And then under the council, you had the assembly. The assembly would be similar to our House of Representatives. They were the lower part of the colonial legislature. So they were under the council. These people actually were typically elected. It was an annual election. And they were elected by the people who owned property within the town. So again, not a lot of voice for the people. A lot of it was appointed by the king. This was one of the things that actually caused some dissension to start with. So I want to go back to Parliament for just a minute. The British government had argued that Parliament's authority to legislate for the colonies was completely unlimited. They stated that explicitly in something called the Declaratory Act of 1766, which was a trade-off for the Stamp Act. We're going to talk about that later. The British also argued that the colonists, while not actually represented in Parliament, were nonetheless virtually represented. So what was happening was you have the members of Parliament who are British citizens, but they're based in England. There's nobody there from the actual colonies. So this would be like taking two states and telling one state you don't get to have any of your representatives or senators anymore. This other state's going to send their senators and representatives to represent you. So you're not going to be represented in our Congress, but they'll represent you, which really isn't representation, right? It's two different states, it's different ways of life, different circumstances. This is what was happening in the British Parliament. So the colonists argued that Parliament's authorities over the colonies was limited. The colonies initially recognized Parliament's right to legislate for the whole British Empire on matters like trade, but they argued that parliamentary taxation was a violation of the principle of taxation by consent, since consent could only be granted by the colonists' own representatives, which were non-existent at that point. Americans also argued that the colonies were outside of Parliament's jurisdiction and that the colonists owed allegiance only to the crown. 
So basically they're saying that the colonial legislature should be co-equal and not subordinate to parliament. This is another thing that really escalated tensions. So parliament and King George had several acts that they passed, like I said before, that really widened the rift between them and the colonies. There were several, they were over a span of several years, more than 10. I'm going to look at some specific ones today. The first one I want to look at was the Sugar Act of 1764. This was an act that was replacing another act called the Molasses Act. The Molasses Act had been put in place by Parliament to regulate trade, and it was set to expire in 1763. The commissioners of customs anticipated a really big demand for molasses and rum as a result of the end of the Seven Years' War and the acquisition of Canada. Since there was supposedly going to be some increased demand, they thought, we can take this tax that's on molasses and cut it in half and make it affordable and collectible. So they did this, and it was passed by Parliament in the form of the Sugar Act. But in addition to that, the act promised really strict enforcement and the language of the bill made it really clear that the purpose of the leg legislation was not just to regulate the trade. It was also to raise revenue. So the new act had a list of specific goods that were going to be taxed and ship captains were required to maintain these really detailed manifests of their cargo and they couldn't unload anything from their ships until the papers on this stuff was verified. Customs officials were powerful enough that they could have any violation of this tried in a vice admiralty court rather than a regular just colonial court. It was a special court set up. It's actually one of the things that was listed in the Declaration of Independence as a problem. This new court required a bunch of new people and required more taxes to pay these people. So they set these admiralty courts up also because most of the jury trials, the regular colonial courts, really kind of just winked an eye at smuggling. They were okay with it. And they were not about paying all of these extra taxes. So there were a couple of men who protested the Sugar Act. One of them was Samuel Adams, and the other one was James Otis, and they were both from Massachusetts. So in May 1764, Samuel Adams drafted a report on the Sugar Act for the Massachusetts Assembly, and he denounced the whole thing as an infringement, an infringement of the rights of the colonists as British subjects. This is what he said. For if our trade may be taxed, why not our lands? Why not the produce of our lands and everything we possess or make use of? This we apprehend annihilates our charter rights to govern and tax ourselves. It strikes our British privileges, which as we have never forfeited them, we hold in common with our fellow subjects who are natives of Britain. If taxes are laid upon us in any shape without our having a legal representation where they are laid, are we not reduced from the character of free subjects to the miserable state of tributary slaves? 
So he did this report, and in August of 1764, there were 50 Boston merchants who agreed to stop purchasing British luxury imports. And in Boston and New York City, there were movements to increase colonial manufacturing. There were also several sporadic outbreaks of violence, most notably in Rhode Island. Overall, however, this one wasn't one of the immediate acts that just like flared everything up. It caused some resentment, but it wasn't a huge amount yet. The Stamp Act of 1765 was an act that imposed a direct tax on the British colonies in America. And what it did, it was required that a lot of printed materials in the colonies had to be produced on stamped paper that was produced in London. And this paper had like an embossed revenue stamp on it. And these included legal documents, magazines, playing cards, newspapers, and several other types of paper used throughout the colonies. And not only did it have to be on this paper, this had to be paid for in British currency, not in colonial paper money. The purpose of the tax was to pay for British military troops stationed in the American colonies after the French and Indian War. The war, though, was over, and they the colonists contended that they had already paid their share of the war expenses. They were suggesting that it was actually the British that needed to pay for a standing army in peacetime. The Stamp Act was extremely unpopular among colonists. A majority of it considered it a violation of their rights as Englishmen to be taxed without their consent. Consent only the colonial legislatures could grant. Their slogan was no taxation without representation. Several of the colonial assemblies actually sent petitions and protests, and the Stamp Act Congress was held in New York City. This is the first significant joint colonial response to any British measure when it petitioned Parliament and the King. So the Stamp Act was one of the most divisive acts, probably one that really fed the fire a lot. The next one we're going to look at is actually a combination of acts. It's the Mutiny Acts and the Quartering Acts. The Mutiny Acts specifically did not fuel the fire, but the Mutiny Acts led to something called the Quartering Acts. So let's start with the Mutiny Acts. These were acts passed by Parliament for governing, regulating, provisioning, and funding the English and later British Army. They had to be renewed every year, and so far they were on a 200-year run. So the Mutiny Act of 1765 and later the Mutiny Act of 1774 are better known as the Quartering Acts because of some changes that were added. Parliament added a caveat to these that had some quartering requirements for the British troops in the American colonies beyond what the army provided for. Originally, as were many of these things, they were intended as a response to the French and Indian War, which was over at this point. General Thomas, Thomas Gage was the commander-in-chief of forces for the British North America Army. He had a hard time persuading the colonial assemblies to pay for quartering and provisioning the troops while they were on the march. So he asked Parliament to do something. Again, most of the colonies had supplied provisions during the war, but this issue was disputed in peacetime. 
The armies were stationed in New York because the New York Assembly had passed an act to provide for quartering the British regulars, but it expired on January the 2nd of 1764. So the result was the Quartering Act of 1765, and it went way beyond what General Gage had requested. No standing army had been kept in the colonies before the French and Indian War, so the colonies were asking why they needed to pay for a standing army now. The first Quartering Act was approved by King George on May 15th of 1765, and it provided that Great Britain would house its soldiers in American barracks and public houses, as the Mutiny Act of 1765 had said, but it said if the soldiers outnumber the housing available, then they could quarter them in inns, livery stables, alehouses, and so forth. And if the numbers went beyond that, they could be quartered in uninhabited houses, outhouses, barns, or other buildings. Colonial authorities were required to pay the cost of housing and feeding these soldiers. Again, we're talking about in peacetime. This was really unprecedented. They hadn't had a standing army before the wars had started. Why did we need one now? And why should we have to pay for it? So the Quartering Act of 1774 was part of a series of acts that I'm going to look at separately called the Intolerable Acts. The Quartering Act applied to all of the colonies, and it sought to create a more effective method of housing the British troops in America. So this Quartering Act allowed a governor to house the soldiers in other buildings if suitable quarters were not provided. Previously, the colonial legislators have been uncooperative in providing any quarters for them, but now they didn't have a say-so. It was in the governor's hands. So the next act was the Tea Act of 1773. So at this point, there was the British East India Company who had imported a massive amount of tea. It was struggling financially, and so Parliament decided to pass the Tea Act with two objectives in mind. The first was to try to help the company survive, and the second was a little bit of a devious scheme to get the colonists to accept taxes that they had placed on tea itself. So what happened was that the British East India Company was required to sell its tea pretty much just in London, and they paid a duty on it. Tea was then sent to North America, having been purchased by tea merchants, and once it got there, they imposed markups on it. So the markups combined with the tea tax really elevated the price enough that smuggled tea became a problem. It was a really profitable thing at that point because it was easy to undercut the British East India Company. Um, something like 900,000 pounds of tea were smuggled into the North American colonies per year. And of that, the Americans bought about 562,000 pounds. So what Parliament decided to do was cut out the middleman and the East India Company basically appointed colonial merchants to receive the tea on consignment. The consignees would in turn sell the tea for a commission. This lowered the price, but the taxes from the towns index remained. Parliament hoped that since the price had been lowered, the colonists would just accept the Townsend taxes and kind of give them 
a point that they could say, hey, you paid this. Obviously, we have a right to tax you. The funny part is in all of this, the British tea was actually a higher quality and tasted way better. The Dutch smuggled tea tasted bitter. But the colonists in protest still drank the smuggled Dutch tea. So every colony except Massachusetts managed to protest the tea consignees enough that they resigned or they returned their tea to England. The only place that did not was Boston. Governor Hutchinson was determined to hold his ground and he convinced the tea consignees, two of whom were his sons, not to back off. So there was a tea ship called the Dartmouth that arrived in Boston Harbor in late November. Samuel Adams, who we see again, called for this mass meeting to be held on November 29th of 1773. Reportedly, thousands of people showed up for this, so many that the meeting spot actually had to be moved to another spot. British law required that the Dartmouth had to unload and pay the duties within 20 days or customs officials could confiscate the cargo. So this mass meeting passed a resolution introduced by Samuel Adams and based on a similar set of resolutions that were attempted to be passed earlier in Philadelphia that urged the captain of the Dartmouth to send the ship back without paying the import duty. So the meeting assigned 25 men to watch the ship and try to prevent the tea from being unloaded. Governor Hutchinson refused to grant permission for the Dartmouth to leave without paying the duty. And in the meantime, two more tea ships, the Eleanor and the Beaver, arrived in Boston Harbor. So on December the 16th, which was the last day of the Dartmouth's deadline, roughly five to 7,000 people out of a population of around 16,000 had gathered around the Old South Meeting House where the meeting was being held. After receiving a report that Governor Hutchinson had once again refused to let the ships leave, Adams announced that this meeting can do nothing further to save the country. That evening, a group of anywhere from 30 to 130 men, some dressed up like Mohawk warriors, boarded the three vessels and over the course of the next three hours dumped all 342 chests of tea into the water. The property damage amounted to the destruction of 92,000 pounds of tea, and it was reported by the British East India Company to be worth around 9,659 pounds. In today's money, that would be around $1,700,000. There was another tea ship that had been intended for Boston called the William, and it had actually run aground at Cape Cod in December of 1773. Its tea ended up being taxed and sold to private parties. So in March of 1774, the Sons of Liberty got some information that this tea was being held in a warehouse in Boston. And so they entered the warehouse and destroyed all of it that they could find. Some of it had already been sold to a company called Davison Newman and Company and was being held in their shop. On March the 7th, the Sons of Liberty once again dressed as Mohawks, broke into the shop and dumped the last remaining tea into the harbor. This event or conglomerate of events was known as the Boston Tea Party, and it was a significant event in the growth of the American Revolution. 
Parliament responded in 1774 with the Intolerable Acts, one of which was, as we talked about earlier, the Quartering Act. And among other provisions, it ended local self-government in Massachusetts and it closed Boston's commerce. Colonists up and down the three colonies responded to the Intolerable Acts with additional acts of protest and ended up convening the First Continental Congress. So the Intolerable Acts, which I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, but I did want to just run over them a little bit deeper, were in response to the Boston Tea Party. And it was really one of the final things that kicked off the revolution. It consisted of four laws enacted by the British Parliament. The first one was the Massachusetts Government Act, which altered the Massachusetts Charter and restricted town meetings. The second act was the Administration of Justice Act, and it ordered that all British soldiers to be tried were to be arraigned in Britain, not the colonies. The third act was the Boston Port Act, which closed the port of Boston until the British had been compensated for the tea lost in the Boston Tea Party. And the fourth act, which we've talked about already, was the Quartering Act of 1774, and it allowed royal governors to house the British troops in homes of citizens without requiring permission of the owner. So all of these that we have talked about and more eventually caused tensions between the colonies and Great Britain to escalate to full-blown war. The very first shot, the shot heard around the world, was fired at the battles of Lexington and Concord on the 19th of April in 1775. In April of 1776, the North Carolina Provincial Congress issued the Halifax Resolves, explicitly authorizing its delegates to vote for independence. By June, nine provincial congresses were ready for independence and one by one, the last four fell into line. Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, and New York. Richard Henry Lee was instructed by the Virginia legislature to propose independence, and he did so on June 7th of 1776. He proposed the following resolution to Congress, and it was seconded by John Adams. Resolved that these United Colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, that it is expedient forthwith to take the most effectual measures for forming foreign alliances, that a plan of confederation be prepared and transmitted to the respective colonies for their consideration and approbation. On June 11th, a committee was created to draft a document explaining the justifications for separation from Britain. After securing enough votes for passage, independence was voted for on July the 2nd. The Declaration of Independence was drafted mostly by Thomas Jefferson and presented by the committee itself. It was unanimously adopted by the entire Congress on July the 4th and each colony became independent and autonomous. I feel like it's important for us to understand the reasons set forth by the Continental Congress for dissolving the Union with Great Britain and founding America. We can't begin to safeguard or fight for our liberties today if we don't fully understand where they came from in the first place. So like I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text of the Declaration 
And when we come to the 27 grievances listed as cause for separation, I'll try to explain each one in light of what we know about how the colonies were supposed to be governed and how they were actually governed. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness." Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience have shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism. It is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having a direct object, the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. And here is where the 27 grievances start. So as I said, I'm going to read the grievance and then I'm going to try to explain it for you. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. The colonial assemblies had attempted to pass different legislations, including ones on governing their slaves, creating colonial currency, and requesting representatives be sent to parliament. Anytime that such laws were introduced to the local assemblies, they were routinely vetoed by King George III. Number two. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. So several of the governors had actually refused to endorse laws that were really good for the public. The Massachusetts Assembly attempted to pass a law in 1770 for taxing government officers in that colony, but the king ordered the governor to withhold his assent. 
this was a violation of the colonial charter of Massachusetts, and it showed really how little power the colonies had. In 1764, New York wanted to pass a law to include the Indian tribes among the colonies. British Governor Colden privately agreed to this, but the king sent back instructions to all of his governors to stop pursuing this particular idea until further notice. The colonists waited, but the king utterly neglected to attend to them. Neglect was one of the two reasons mentioned by philosopher John Locke, who strongly influenced the founding fathers as a valid reason for dissolving the government. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. So in 1774, Parliament changed the form of government in Canada, which is then called the province of Quebec, from a representative government to a legislative council that would be run by the king himself. There were a large amount of English settlers there that took objection to this and petitioned the king, but with no luck. And at about the same time, the king was proposing a similar type of government in Massachusetts. In both cases, all appeals to the king were ignored. Number four, he has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. On May 20th of 1774, Parliament passed the Massachusetts Government Act, which nullified the Massachusetts Charter of 1691 and allowed Governor Thomas Gage, who was also the general of the British armies in North America, to dissolve the local provincial assembly and force them to meet in Salem. This was after the Boston Tea Party, and at the time their legislative body was meeting in Boston. The public records were also kept in Boston, so if you had to go to Salem, which is several miles away, for anything along the lines of, of legislature, you if you didn't know what specifically you'd be talking about, or even if you did, you might not know what records to bring, you had to transport those records with you. And it wasn't just a matter of let's go to another building and grab these. If we're missing one, you have to go back to Boston and bring it back to Salem. And it was really just a wear down tactic. He didn't want them to do that. He thought if he made it difficult, maybe they would just not bother with things. Number five, he has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. So the Massachusetts Assembly, again, had issued a circular to the other assemblies in 1768, urging mutual cooperation and asserting the principle that Great Britain had no right to tax the colonists without their consent. The king demanded that the assembly rescind the resolutions expressed in the circular, and he ordered the governor to dissolve the Massachusetts assembly immediately if they refused. Other assemblies were warned by the government not to imitate Massachusetts, and the king dissolved any that refused to yield to their royally appointed governors. The North Carolina General Assembly and the Virginia General Assembly were dissolved for denying the right of the king to tax the colonies or to extradite Americans from the colonies to stand trial. 
Several assemblies discussed forming a general Congress with delegates from all of the colonies in 1774, and the king dissolved nearly all of those who even thought about it. Of the civil government of Massachusetts as the governor, both offices were held by royal appointment and without the approval of the people or the provincial government of Massachusetts. Parliament approved this. Number six. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise. The state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions from within. So the Assembly of New York had refused to comply with the provisions of the Mutiny Act in 1766, so Parliament passed the New York Restraining Act, 1767, which suspended the Assembly's legislative authority. And the Assembly of Massachusetts was dissolved in 1768 and wasn't permitted to meet again until the last Wednesday of May 1769. Even then, they found a military guard surrounding their meeting location with cannons pointed directly at it. Number seven. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states, for that purpose obstructing the laws of naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of land. So German immigrate, immigration had been a big thing in America. They'd had a huge influx of immigrants from Germany, and the king wanted to discourage that. The government was concerned over the increasing power of the colonies and the widespread popularity of Republican ideals among German immigrants. After the peace of 1763, very few people settled west of the Alleghenies due to these restrictions, and immigration had almost ceased by the time of the revolution. Number eight. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. So when Parliament had deprived the people of Massachusetts the right to elect their judges in 1774, the king appointed all of the colony's judges instead. And they were dependent on him for their salaries and they were subject to his directions. Those salaries came from the taxes and duties on the colonists. The same act deprived the colonists of the benefit of trial by jury and the administration of justice was obstructed. Other colonies expressed similar grievances concerning the courts of law. Number nine, he's made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. So judges and the royally appointed governors didn't depend on colonists for their income. They drew their salaries from the king and the American colonists saw that this led them to sympathize with Parliament, but not the colonies. Again, this all goes back to there being very little representation of actual Americans. The colonial assemblies protested these measures and led to the formation of committees of correspondence in 1774. When Chief Justice Oliver declared that it was his intention to receive his salary from the Crown, the assembly proceeded to impeach him and petitioned Governor Thomas Hutchinson for his removal. The governor refused compliance. Number 10. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. 
So when we talked about the Stamp Act, we talked about Admiralty and Vice Admiralty Courts. These were established specifically for that purpose and increased the number of officers that were under the king's power and in his pay. In 1766 and 1767, there were acts for collections of duties, and this also created more officers, and they all received high salaries. The high salaries and the extensive prerequisites of all of these people were paid with the people's money, and thus swarms of officers ate out their substance. Number 11, he has kept among us in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. In 1763, Britain and France had signed the Treaty of Paris and ended the Seven Years' War. This was when Parliament decided to keep a standing permanent army in the American colonies, supposedly to keep the French from reasserting their control. This came down to, again, all of the acts we talked about. The colonists did not want to pay to quarter and feed these troops in a time of peace. General Thomas Gage occupied Boston in September of 1774, and he relied on the quartering acts that we talked about before to quarter his troops. It was Gage's military occupation of Boston that led the Second Continental Congress to include this grievance in the Declaration of Independence. Number 12. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. Upon his arrival at Boston in 1774, Thomas Gage, who again was the general and the commander-in-chief of the British forces in North America, assumed control. The purpose of this arrangement was really to enforce the payment of customs and quell any insurrections and resistance that might come up. The Continental Congress considered that the police power of the state had been removed from accountability to the people because of this. There really was no line drawn between military and civil government at that point. Number 13, he has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. So the others here were the members of parliament and the Americans had refused, even by implication, to recognize Parliament's authority by this time. Parliament had established a board of trade to act independent of the colonial legislation through the commissioners of customs in the enforcement of revenue laws. This establishment and the Admiralty courts that were remodeled to exclude trial by jury absolutely disgusted the colonists and led them to include this in their list of grievances. Number 14, for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us. Again, this is the quartering acts of 1765. This was one of the most obnoxious things that King George had done to the colonists. It allowed soldiers stationed in the colonies to request shelter from any citizens and created punishment for refusal. Number 15, for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states. 
1768, two citizens of Annapolis had died in a violent dispute against a group of British Marines. The trial was extremely controversial. And even though there was overwhelming evidence against the Marines, the defendants were acquitted. Number 16, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world. In the years leading up to the revolution, the Navigation Acts had been passed to control trade with the colonies of Spain and France, and it hindered a lot of revenue for the colonists. They had to trade directly with Britain, and anything that they imported had to come from Britain. 17. For imposing taxes on us without our consent. This is a theme we've seen throughout so many of the acts of parliament. In addition to the revenue taxes, they attempted to collect writs of assistance. In April of 1774, Lord North introduced a bill in parliament entitled a bill for the impartial administration of justice in the cases of persons questioned for any acts done by them in the execution of the laws or for the suspect suppression of riots and tumults in the province of Massachusetts Bay in New England. This is the Administration of Justice Act that we talked about before. And this is just where we see, again, the taxing without consent. This was a theme that ran through all of the acts that Parliament tried to pass, and the colonists bucked it as hard as they could. Provided that in case any person indicted for murder in that province or any other capital offense or an indictment for riot, resistance to the magistrate, or impeding the revenue laws in any degree could be at the option of the governor or in his absence, the lieutenant governor, be taken completely to another colony or transported from the colonies entirely for trial. If somebody broke any of these laws, they could have them sent to another colony for trial or sent even back to Great Britain. This bill actually had opposition in Parliament, but it still passed. Lord North actually said, we must show the Americans that we will no longer sit quietly under their insults. And also that even when roused, our measures are not cruel or vindictive, but necessary. Colonel Barr denounced the bill in completely just angry terms. He said, this is indeed the most extraordinary resolution that was ever heard in the Parliament of England, and it offers new encouragement to military insolence already so insupportable. Even as much controversy as it drew from Parliament, it was still enforced. 20. For abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries to render it once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies. This refers to the Quebec Act of 1774, which expanded the use of French civil law in Quebec. That's the one that made judges and other officers independent of the people and subservient to the crown. As compared to English common law and expanding Canadian borders into what is now the Midwestern states of the United States. 21. For taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our government. So this one is basically a reiteration of 
a charge previously brought, and it refers to the alteration of the Massachusetts Charter. 22. For suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever, stand in the place of statute law. Lord Dunmore assumed this right in 1775, and so did Sir James Wright of Georgia and Lord William Campbell of South Carolina. So this is another reiteration of the previous charge. Suppression occurred in the legislature of New York, and in several cases, the governors, after dissolving the colonial assemblies, assumed the right to make proclamations. 23. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. So in his message to Parliament in 1775, George III had declared the colonists to be in a state of open rebellion. And by sending armies to America, he abdicated government by declaring them no longer under his protection. Not long after that, the Prohibitory Act was passed by Parliament, and in it, it sanctioned the acts of governors in, in employing Native Americans to quell the rebellion and negotiated the hiring of German soldiers. John Adams said of this act, it throws 13 colonies out of the royal protection, levels all distinction, and makes us independent in spite of our supplications and entreaties. It may be fortunate that the act of independency should come from the British Parliament rather than the American Congress. 24. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. So Lord Dunmore, who is one of the governors, had ordered a seizure of several American merchant vessels and several naval assaults were made upon the colonies. This really disrupted life and was a direct attack on the colonists. 25. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and unworthy the head of a civilized nation. This again is where George III had sanctioned the hiring of German soldiers for use against the 13 colonies, and this was an outrage to the Americans. Parliament had passed another act in December of 1775 that authorized the capture of all American vessels and basically said that the crews of the vessels were to be impressed into service and not kept as prisoners of war. So basically, these men were pushed into service as British soldiers and were forced to fight against other Americans. 26. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. This act itself was another act that was condemned in Parliament as unworthy of a Christian people and a refinement of cruelty unknown among savage nations. 27. He has excited domestic insurrections among us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. There were actually several instances of this throughout the American Revolution. 
Um, again, Governor Dunmore had attempted to employ Native Americans against the Virginians at least as early as 1774. And he had also issued a proclamation that tried to really rally the Black slaves against their American masters. There were orders from the government, the British government, to try to get the Indians and the Native inhabitants of Ohio country to fight the Americans as well. They actually sent several emissaries out, including to the Cherokees and the Creeks and to most of the tribes of the Six Nations. A lot of these actually ended up fighting against the Americans when the war started. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting an attention to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow those usurpations which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and consanguinity. We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war and peace friends. We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other acts of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. The signers of the declaration were committing treason and rebellion, according to King George. John Hancock's signature, large at the forefront of the list of signers, reminds us of their boldness and courage to stand for what was then just an idea of a country of liberty. John Adams gave a speech to the Continental Congress, urging them to ratify the declaration. His feeling really sums up what I think most of the founding fathers felt at that point. Sink or swim, live or die, survive or perish, I give my heart and my hand to this vote. It is true indeed that in the beginning we did not aim for independence, but there is a divinity that shapes our ends. Why then should we defer the declaration? You and I indeed may rue it. We may not live to see the time when this declaration shall be made good. We may die, die colonists or die slaves. Be it so, be it so. 
If it be the pleasure of heaven that my country shall require the poor offering of my life, the victims shall be ready. But while I do live, let me have a country or at least the hope of a country and that a free country. But whatever may be our fate, be assured that this declaration will stand. It may cost treasure and it may cost blood, but it will stand and richly compensate for both. Through the gloom of the present, I see the brightness of the future, like the sun in heaven. We shall make this a glorious and immortal day. When we are in our graves, our children will honor it. They will celebrate it with thanksgiving and festivities, with bonfires and illuminations. Before God, I believe that the hour has come. My judgment approves this measure and my whole heart is in it. All that I have, all that I am, and all that I hope in this life, I am now ready to stake on it and leave off as I began. Live or die, survive or perish, I am for this declaration. It is my living sentiment, and by the blessing of God, it will be my dying sentiment. Independence now, independence forever. I think the words of John Adams could ring true today if we stay true to this idea that the founding fathers had of a free country for all, we can still see the brightness of the future, but we can't get lazy. Just like the daughters of Shalom that I talked about last week, we have to do the work of the Lord with one hand, build with one hand, but we have to defend our homes and freedom with the other. Never forget where you came from. And this was our beginning. Oh, 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 oh,